Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Abe. I'm one of the elders and teachers here at Soma Tacoma. And we are going to begin this morning with a question, a couple questions I'd love to get your input on. And it's, a, it's a, maybe a little bit of a hard question to ask, but we're going for it anyway, diving right in. So from your perspective, and, and maybe think about a friendship that you have, a relationship that you have with someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, maybe a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, or think about maybe the impression that you've gotten through, through the media, through entertainment. What would you say is the reputation of Christians in the world? From the world's perspective, what, what kind of reputation would you say Christians have? Roseanne. Uptight and judgmental, okay? Okay, closed-minded. Travis. Hypocritical, okay? Yeah, Charles. All right, black and white view of the world. What else? What's the world's perspective? Okay, self-serving. Yeah, sure. Gullible, okay. Andre. Okay, high moral standards. Ignorant, okay. Tim. Okay, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. Yeah. Modest, okay. All right. I might add, uh, on the whole, I think, Christians still have a reputation of being generous on the whole when you consider orphanages and hospitals and a lot of social service agencies. The world actually kind of expects the church to step up and help people who are in need. Um, so I would say generally Christians have a reputation for being generous also. Uh, now, to put a little finer point on it, what would you say is our Christians' reputation in terms of political engagement when it comes to our role in politics what what would you say is the world's perspective on Christians conservative okay Republican okay <laughs> Brandon say a little more about that <laughs> okay okay so it seems like the place where Christians really feel free to express their political views, maybe perhaps loudly, is through Facebook and or other social media. Yeah, Michael. Okay, good, good. We're perceived as being against a lot of things, but not necessarily being for stuff. Anything else? Okay, single issue focused. So I recently posted something online on Facebook about how it was a story covered both by the New York Times and Time Magazine, so news outlets that are fairly widely respected. And both of those news outlets talked about how at the Women's March in January, uh, pro-life women were particularly not welcomed. And my wife and I had had a conversation about that, and as people who thought that there was a lot of 
of like good with the women's march and some important issues being raised and you know just the the importance of equity in terms of you know the relationship between men and women and lots and lots of historic brokenness there it's like yeah this issue needs some attention um, but my wife, as a woman who cares about the lives of the unborn, she particularly, as an individual, felt like, I, I feel like I couldn't show up at that because there's such a, an anti-pro-life position. And then I read these news stories, and I, I decided to post one saying, like, yeah, this is really unfortunate that a certain segment of women are being ostracized from this important movement. So I validated the movement while at the same time criticizing it. And I have a friend who is very, very, very outspoken about her political views. Um, and one of them happens to be that she's very, very pro-choice. Uh, she's an old neighbor of ours. She lived across the street from us in our old house. And so we've spent lots of time together, meals and watched her kids and all this kind of stuff. So we have a good relationship. And she responded to my post um, pretty, pretty directly and uh, very, very clear about her opposition. And, and I responded by saying, hey, let's, let's sit down and meet. And so recently we, we did, we had a face-to-face -face meeting, and I'm driving to this meeting thinking, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, here I am, you know, this Christian pastor, you know, a little outspoken about pro-life, and I'm going to meet with this friend of mine who's like very, very involved in all sorts of political things and very outspoken and has big signs on her front door. And I thought, this, this could be interesting. And by God's grace, it went really well, which I'll tell you more about later, but one of the most enlightening things about the conversation was when she said to me, she said, Abe, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I realize this isn't fair, but when I think about Christians, I assume that all of them are conservative, Republicans, single-issue people, narrow-minded, stingy, like all these things. Not Actually, not generous. And it clarified the sense of what all of us are kind of saying. It seems like that's the impression out there. And here I have one friend, now that's anecdotal evidence, but one friend who was like so crystal clear with this kind of impression that we have in terms of our political engagement. Oh, and particularly it was like mean-spirited, judgmental, not open to hearing the other side and that sort of thing. So, one last question for you. What should be the reputation of Christians in the world. Loving, safe, wise, gentle, like Jesus. Yeah, that's good. We might hear a little bit more about that later. Okay, good. Yeah, willing to listen, empathetic, open. The word compassionate comes to mind. That when, I've talked about this before, but I feel led to say it again. When someone or a group of people, maybe even a large group of people, maybe millions of people, raise their hand and say, we think this is wrong. We don't feel like we're being treated right. And here's a few stories. Okay, they're expressing hurt. If we come with facts first, we've not been compassionate or empathetic. We want to actually enter into their pain first. We don't want to tell them that their pain is invalid. You at least want to start with a human response, an empathetic compassion. Compassion means to suffer with. So you want to enter into their suffering and say, oh man, I see that you're hurting. Let me hear more about why you're hurting. Let me try to understand why you're hurting before I come and just go, oh, you have absolutely no reason to feel that way. 
How do you feel when someone says that to you? You express an emotion and someone just immediately dismisses it. Not feeling the love, are you? Not feeling the love. So a lot of these words that you said, I think right in the center of what we're going to talk about today in terms of a Christian's reputation in the world. We're in the book of Titus. If you have a Bible, you should turn there. We are going to finish chapter 2 and start chapter 3 together today. We come to a place in the book where Paul gets really, really specific about what obedience looks like. I want to remind you of some important context here. I want to take a few steps back in the text and get a little bit of a running start at the passage that we're in today because it's really important for us to understand. We spent most of chapter 2 talking about what godly living looks like, what it looks like for someone who believes the gospel to actually live that out in the context mainly of your home. We talked about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then slaves. Okay, so we talk, those are mainly like household orders in the ancient world. Okay, we applied slavery to work. So we're kind of talking about work a little bit there, but mainly it's about, chapter two is about, if you believe the gospel, then this is what it should look like for you to live that out in those kinds of relationships. And just to make it clear that it is our experience of God's grace that motivates us to radical obedience, at the end of chapter two, specifically verses 11 through 14, Paul gives his first explicit sort of preaching of the gospel in the book of Titus. And I taught that two weeks ago, and that Sunday we were reminded that it is our experience of the extravagant grace of God that will motivate us to radical obedience. And that's what we talked about. So everything in chapter 2, Paul says, hey, adorn the doctrine. Remember I've said over and over, you are all preachers. When you walk around and you live and you're in relationships with friends and with family members and with neighbors and with housemates and with spouses and children and coworkers, guess what you're doing? You're preaching the gospel, or you're, you're preaching a gospel. You're preaching what you believe to be true about God and about you through the way that you live. You're wearing your doctrine like clothing, Paul says. Now... He's going to shift gears and he's going to go from like this household living out of the gospel and he's actually going to broaden it. He's going to talk to us through the word of God today about how we, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in the world now? Not just in these like familial household relationships, but now how do we live out in the world in a way that displays the reality of the gospel through the way that we live our lives? So he's going, he's going big picture here. So we're going to pick it up. Oh, one thing I have to say uh, before we dive into the text. So one of his big points here that I, that I want us to get is that your life, and particularly a life of obedience, and a life of obedience to Jesus Christ 
the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, a life of obedience is the main way that you are going to communicate your faith to other people. We might say it this way. Obedience has a missional component to it. That when you live, regardless of whether you're obeying God or disobeying and living however the heck you want, your life is preaching and people are listening. People are watching. Now, this shouldn't like put pressure on you but it should help you realize there's implications for the way that you live. And there's implications for you as a missionary. If you're here this morning and you say to yourself, man, I am thankful for what Jesus Christ has done in my life. I've received his grace. I want to tell other people about it. Well, guess what? Your first sentence is your life. It's your life. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. He's like, look, the way you engage with politics on Facebook, it matters. It matters. The way you conduct yourself in conversation, the way you conduct yourself in a restaurant with the server who's waiting on you, it matters to your faith. It matters to your witness. It matters to your testimony. So we're going to pick it up in verse 15. We're only going to deal with three verses today. Verse 15, Paul says to Titus, who's a church leader, he's on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul helped establish the church. He left Titus there so Titus could help move the church towards maturity. And, of course, he's been talking for two chapters about the gospel and about false teaching and about church leadership and about how the gospel works itself out in these familial relationships. And he says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So three, three imperatives here, declare, which basically means to say or to teach, exhort, which, which means encourage or even sort of comfort, and then rebuke, which means to correct when something's gone wrong. So there's a little bit of a sense of, of an increase here, like, hey, teach it. And then if you need to, throw an arm around somebody and say, hey, I really want to encourage you to do the right thing. And then if they go astray, take it a step further and go, hey, now I actually need to rebuke you. I need to pull you back in, okay? So declare, exhort, rebuke. And don't let anyone disregard you. This is your role, Titus. This is your role. And so I guess we've only got one other elder in the room. I was going to charge our elders here. Um, and anyone else who might be an elder in the future, because there's future elders in the room too. This is the role of church leadership. So let us not shirk back from it as leaders, but step into calling people to obedience, calling people to obedience. It's a good work that God has invited us to do. And on the other side, church family, don't disregard the authority of church leaders. There's the word right there. Don't disregard their authority. Well, I know none of us really like authority, okay? We're Americans. We don't want someone telling us what to do, all right? We don't like authority, but authority is key a key part of the structure of our relationship with God. If we don't see him as the ultimate authority who then has distributed authority to other people in our lives, we're never going to get it. We're never going to get it. So what is Titus to do with this authority and this teaching, exhorting, rebuking ministry that the Spirit's given him? Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient 
and to be ready for every good work. I'm going to deal with those three commands together. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Initially, when I started studying, I thought they were a little bit uh, separate, but as I did a little bit of commentary study, um, at the end, I realized that really Paul has in mind with chapter or with verse one, our relationship as Christians to the government and to politicians. These three things, okay? Be submissive, be obedient, be ready for every good work. Those three things define how we, as followers of Jesus, and I want to remind you of the gospel here, if you've experienced God's extravagant grace, it will motivate and lead you to a life of radical obedience, okay? So radical obedience in relationship to the government and to politicians looks like these three things. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you're like, wow, I want to obey Jesus, what does that look like in my political and governmental engagement? It looks like submission, obedience, and being ready for every good work. So let me just unpack this for a little bit. Submission to rulers and authorities means that we, we willingly sort of come under the authority structure that God has instituted in the world. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and by the way, they didn't vote on the emperor, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. See, he's saying, you have submitted your life to God that doesn't mean that you don't have to submit to the governing authorities. You can't walk around and go, well, Jesus is my king, so I don't have to listen to our Congress. That's not what it means. In fact, it's the opposite. Since you've submitted your life to God and God has instituted governmental authority, therefore you submit to governmental authority as an expression of your submission to God. Now, there is, there's an exception clause to this in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter and John were told by the religious leaders, do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So anytime the government says for you to do something that would require you to disobey God, then your submission to God trumps your submission to the government. Okay? A few examples. Today, in China, Christians are not allowed to legally gather. It's against the law. But what are they doing? They're gathering. Why? Because we must obey God rather than hundred and some years ago in the South, slaves were escaping in the South, trying to get to the North. It's against the law. 
what did people do? They set up the Underground Railroad. Why? Because they were convicted. We, we have to obey God rather than men. As the Nazis were, were pouring across Europe and they were arresting Jews and putting them on trains and sending them off to concentration camps, there were a whole bunch of people, a lot of them Christians, including Corey Ten Boom and her family, and what did they do with the Jews that they knew? Did they call the police and say, yeah, hey, they're down the street? No. They built secret little, house, little compartments in their houses and hid the Jews from the Nazis. Why? We must obey God rather than men. So there's exceptions, but generally the Bible is calling us to submit to the governing authorities. Now, for some of us in the room, this is really, really hard right now. For others in the room, maybe it was hard for the last eight years. And for others in the room, it's always hard. You know why? Because we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We don't want to submit to authority. And the weird flip side of that is, on the other hand, we idealize politicians and government and power. Why? Because at the core of our existence, all of us are, are, are afraid. We deal with fear. And so we're looking for something to give us security. We're looking for something. And for some of you, it's having the right person in office. Ah, that's going to make me feel safer. And for others of you, it's totally disregarding the government and whoever's in office. Because if we could find a different little place of freedom, then I'd feel safe. But we're all after the same thing at the end of the day. Which is why part of our submission needs to look like prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So if you're having a hard time submitting to the governing authorities, and as Peter says, honoring honoring those who've been put in position over us. And by the way, I just want to give you a little, a little historical context. Do you know who the emperor was when Peter wrote that? His name was Nero. Do you know what he was famous for? Rounding up Christians and feeding them to the lions. And Peter says, honor that man. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But I know the Bible says it. And we're going to get to Jesus in a second is our amazing example of someone who submitted to the governing authorities. But 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for the governing authorities. I wonder what, what our social media interaction would be. I wonder what the reputation of Christians in our political engagement would be if, when we read a news story that rankled us, when we read a news story that caused us to go, I can't believe this is happening! I can't believe this is true. Or maybe to scoff like, man, this is such a joke. If instead of then sharing that on social media, what if those news articles prompted us to instead pray? And I mean literally, friends, every single time. What if? What if you prayed before you posted? Pray before you post. You might want to write that down. Pray before you post. And I don't mean pray like, should I post this or not? You should, I mean, 
ask that. I'm just saying, err on the side of not posting it and pray, you know what? I want to pray for this person. I want to pray for those who are in authority over me. That's what the Bible's telling me to do. And as an act of submission to these people and ultimately to God, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to say, Father, would you have mercy on these people? They seem like they need a lot of help from my perspective. Would you please help them? Give them wisdom. Bless them like crazy. I mean, just pray and pray and pray. That's the first thing. Second, be obedient. We're not just to sort of passively passively submit. We're actually to proactively be obedient. This simply means to be a law-abiding citizen. It means to pay your taxes. It means to drive the speed limit. It means to not use your cell phone while driving. What do you get, one touch now, I think? Isn't that the law? Okay, do not use your cell phone while driving, please, for the sake of everyone's safety and our insurance rates. And it means getting the proper permits before you try to remodel a warehouse where a church is gonna gather. You've been around for even a little while. You know that last fall we repented of a bunch of historic wounds and sins, and one was that in the early days of Soma, we remodeled the warehouse downtown without getting proper permits from the city, and we ended up getting kicked out of the building. And actually, as I was praying through this and prepping, I, I realized like it actually happened twice. We got kicked out of the 6th Ave building, too, for the same reason. It's not good. It's wrong. We're going to maintain a posture of repentance on this, by the way. I don't think God wants, like, he's not holding it over us, but I think it's good to be honest and say, we did not submit to the governing authorities, and it was a bad example of leadership to you as a local church. And we're wholeheartedly committed to being transparent, being open, and making godly, wise decisions as an act of submission to the governing authorities. Yeah, we followed up with the city, and we're, we're good with them, and we totally owned our mistakes. And um, So, I hope, you know, by God's grace, that's okay. But, but it was, frankly, it was a debacle. There's no other way to say it. Uh, the next one is be ready for every good work. So this is interesting, too, because now are we not just going to be sort of passively submitted to the government and, okay, we'll obey all the laws that they've given us. Now, this, is, this actually is like super proactive. This says, you know what? Not only are you just going to kind of live a quiet and peaceful life in your social, political, governmental situation, I want you to be on the lookout for ways to bless your country and bless your state and bless your county and bless your city and bless your neighborhood. It's like, be ready. Be on the lookout for every good work. Be proactive. This is what Jesus means when in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all, that, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? That, we want to be a people who are sent to bless the city around us, to bless our, our nation, 
Not just to be naysayers or critics or even just passively people who sit by and go, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do. It's like, no, step into it. Step into it. That's why politics is a worthy pursuit, right? It's a worthy pursuit. We don't just cash out and go, wow, that's super broken. I'm going to pray for them. Like we lean in because it's a way to be ready for every good work. And say, you know what, I'm going to take this broken thing and I'm going to do my best to try to be a minister of the gospel in this broken context. Now, I mentioned earlier, this is hard for all of us. And my guess is that some of you, in light of the events of the past year, where I think by all accounts, politics has been crazy in the United States of America. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who would not agree with that. Like, it's, it's kind of bonkers, okay? On all sides, everything has been crazy. So this has actually gotten even harder for us because not only do we not want anyone telling us what to do, but now that we have all this information and we know how broken the thing actually is, now it's like we're doubly resistant to the idea of submitting to the government. So, what in the world is going to motivate us to do this? Well, the Spirit reminded me of Jesus' submission to the governing authorities. John chapter 19, verses 10 through 11, Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is Jesus' opportunity to make his case. And he's not saying anything. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know? that I have authority, there's the key word, to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, the only reason that you have any authority is because my dad gave it to you. That's a pretty sweet answer. That's a pretty sweet answer. And yet his posture is not one of rebellion, not of, well, the only reason you have any authority is because my dad gave it to you, therefore I don't have to listen to you. That's not his posture. His posture is, I recognize the fact that the only authority you have is the authority given you by my father, and still I will submit to your authority because I'm submitted to the father. And do you realize what his submission to this authority cost him? It cost him his life. What is your submission to the government cost you? Not your life. Nobody's laying down their life yet in the United States. It cost Christians around the world their lives, but not us. Not us. It cost us our comfort, our pride, and cost your life. Jesus laid down his life as an act of submission to the governing authorities. And see, Jesus, earlier in his conversation with Pilate, do you know what he told him? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So what Jesus is saying, he's he's saying, you know what? I know that you, Pilate, and all these governors and all these religious leaders, you guys think that this is the highest level of authority that there is. You guys think that you run the world. But guess what? You don't. You don't. I'm the king of this planet, I'm, I'm establishing a kingdom. It's a kingdom that, that doesn't traffic 
in Rome and Greece and Iran and Iraq. It doesn't traffic in that. It's above that. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to unleash a people, a people for my own possession, a people who I will live in. And you think politics is the way to change the world? It ain't nothing. The people of God, the kingdom of God, the people of Jesus Christ, that's what changes the world. That's why Jesus was free to give up his life because he knew that he would raise from the dead, that he would put himself through his spirit into a people and they would be unleashed to turn the world upside down and that's exactly what happened. So there's some of you who are here today and you're all like bound up and, and all like tied up in all this political mumbo jumbo and, and you can barely go a day without worrying about stuff and fretting about stuff and freaking out about stuff and I just want to say like you need to be free from that. Jesus Christ, his kingdom, that's your concern. Look, it's kingdom over country every time. It's people of God over politics every single time, all day. That's what's going to change the world. Spend way less time like pouring over the voter pamphlet, putting signs in your yard and going to rallies and shaking signs. Like you can do some of that stuff. You should vote, okay? Don't hear me say you shouldn't vote. You should vote, right? But less time and energy doing that than getting out there as the people of God and making friends with people who are broken and lost and need help and serving your city and serving your community and speaking the gospel and being kind and generous. Major on that and minor on political engagement. That's why Jesus laid down his life. All right, verse two. He broadens the, the idea of like, what does obedience look like for the Christian? He broadens it from government and political engagement to now, like, how do you carry yourself with everyone in the world? Okay, so this is pretty broad. Verse two. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So I'll take the first two together briefly and then the last two. Speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. These both involve our speech, how we use our mouth, and how we use our words to communicate and, most importantly, relate to other people. See, here's the deal. All of this is about how you relate to the government, how you relate to politics, how you relate on social media, how you relate to your neighbor, how you relate to the world around you. And the way that you relate reveals what you believe to be true about your relationship with God. So if you are harsh and if you lack grace and if you're narrow and you lack empathy, then you're saying that in my relationship with God, I'm not getting much grace. I'm not getting a lot of empathy. He's pretty narrow. That's what you're saying about your relationship with God. But Paul's obviously calling us to completely the other end of things to say, look, the way you relate to God, which is filled with grace and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience, you should have like plenty of that stored up, plenty of that in your pockets where you walk over here to these people and you go, oh, hey, I got some grace and some compassion and some empathy for all of you because that's what I'm getting in spades from God all day long. So that's, that's the dynamic of what's going on here. So with our words, number one, we speak evil of no one. One of my favorite things to hear about somebody when I go to a memorial service or a funeral is when I hear, and I've heard this a few times, they never said a bad word about anybody. 
And I literally think to myself, how is that possible? How is that even possible? Like, surely that's memorial service hyperbole, right? Like, we're just exaggerating because the person's not here. I mean, surely one time they said something mean about somebody, right? So for me, when I read this, it's, it's kind of easy for me to think, like, I shouldn't say anything mean or evil about my family, you know, my wife and my kids and, and my people in my missional community and my church family. And, you know, I definitely shouldn't, like, talk evil about someone to another person that they know because that's gossip. And it's easy for me to wrap my brain around that. Honestly, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around not speaking evil about, you know, someone on my block who, like, really bothers me and I don't have a relationship with them. I just observe their really damaging behavior. It's hard for me to not be like, wow, that guy's messed up. Or the person who cuts me off in traffic, right? No relationship with that person, right? It's, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around, like, how do I not speak evil? Or back to the politicians and the government, like from way, you know, like thousands of miles away, to- lots of distance, no relationship. Like, how do I not occasionally take a shot that's one of those people, verbally. The only thing that helps me make sense of it is to remember that God had every right to look at all of us and pronounce judgment and a curse on every single one of us. To literally speak a curse, to speak judgment on us. And instead, what words came out of his mouth? Blessing, life, righteousness. Wow, I'm on the receiving end of that kind of crazy grace and mercy. Now I can start to think how I can show some restraint towards every other human. Because I deserved to be cursed and I got blessed instead. So now if I dare to think that someone deserves to be cursed, which is like, who am I to decide that in the first place? But if I decide that someone deserves a curse, why wouldn't I withhold that and maybe even speak a blessing instead? Because that's what happened to me. And then to avoid quarreling, another way to say it positively is to be peaceable. I have to go back to the Facebook issue on this because it pains me deeply when I see a brother or a sister who's like down in their fox, their political foxhole, and they're like lobbing grenades to the other person who's you know, in the trench on the other side and they ain't moving, they ain't going anywhere, but I'm gonna keep lobbing grenades and hope that like, I don't know what they hope. I don't know what they hope. And I read these things, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Please stop. Please stop. Do you understand the damage that you're doing to the name of Jesus Christ with your little political argument? There's so much bigger things at stake here. So much bigger things at stake. I think this one, by the way, just to get at the heart a little bit, this is about being right. I mean, honestly, it's about trying to prove a point. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to make sure I'm right. I think there's a mix of justice in there, and I want to make sure that, you know, my people get rightly represented and that that people don't get trampled, and I think you're trampling people, so I'm going to stand up for them. I think that's mixed in there, but I think more than that is I'm right. I'm right. Again, back to prayer. Hey, you think there's such a big social justice issue? Get on your knees and beg God to change it and see what he might lead you to do that's actually proactive and peaceful instead of just lobbing grenades on social media. Okay, finally, last two things. Be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
the language here is a little comedic to me, honestly. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. I mean, it just paints such a picture of like, I don't know, like the Garden of Eden almost. Like, we're just all so nice and friendly and like no one ever does anything mean. We're just perfectly courteous to everyone, right? So I looked up the word in Greek. It helped me a little bit, helped me get, get a little past that because it's actually the word meek, meek, M-E-E-K, meek, which is sometimes translated humble. So it's be gentle and be humble. Okay, that helps me a little bit. That helps me a little bit. Especially when I remember that Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, hey, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. He calls himself meek in that passage. He uses the same word, I'm meek. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul uses both of these words, these exact words, gentle and meek. And he says, that's who Jesus is. He's gentle and he's meek. So think about what would it look like for you in all of your dealings with the person who's waiting on you at the restaurant, to your neighbor who annoys you, to that person on Facebook who they're still lobbing grenades at you, what does it look like for you to respond in gentleness and in humility? What does it look like? What does it look like for you to lay down your right to be right, your need to be right? What does it look like to lay that down and say, you know what? In a sense, I'm going to take the high road. Now, obviously, you're not going to say that because that wouldn't be humble. <laughs> but you're going to lay that down, and you're going to say, you know what? There's a, there's a different way for me to walk right now. It's the way of humility. It's the way of gentleness. So I show up to this meeting with my friend after a brief Facebook interaction, which, by God's grace, was not, it didn't, it didn't go south. Um, and so we sit down, and I'm guessing she's probably kind of nervous and I'm a little nervous, and I prayed before I went, and, and the Holy Spirit, he's so smart. He's so smart. He has such good ideas. You should ask him sometime to give you some good ideas. He gives, he gives great ideas. He said, you should just ask her to tell you her story. About, you know, what, what is it? You are so passionate about women's rights. Man, I really, I respect that. How did that happen? What happened in your life? Like, tell me a little bit of your story, how you landed there. And man, she was very honest with me, and it was very revealing and, 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 and sad, just some of the stuff she's been through. And, and we cried together. It was like, what? here's a pro-life and a pro-choice, and they're crying together about someone's story. Like, there is a God. Okay, there is a God. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I am supposed to be an example to the flock. I believe that God gave me grace to be gentle and humble in that situation and not come in there and say, all right, I got my four arguments why you're wrong and I'm gonna tell you why you're wrong. And babies' lives are at stake, right? It's not about that. It's about let's, let's demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. My friend isn't a follower of Jesus and we, we talked about that. And so there's something way bigger going on here and God gave grace. So hopefully you've seen that Jesus Christ is the one who submitted to the government authorities and he's the one who's come to us with gentleness and humility. I mean, is there anyone more gentle and humble than Jesus Christ who spoke the universe into existence and then took the form of a helpless little baby in Bethlehem? Is there any more picture of humility and gentleness than that? 
Is there a greater picture of humility and gentleness than the one who could have called the armies of heaven to destroy all the religious and political leaders who are going to put him to death? He could have said, hey, get me out of here. And boom, a legion of angels comes and wipes everybody out. But instead, he willingly lets himself be nailed to a Roman cross. Is there a greater picture of, of humility and gentleness? I don't think that there is. So to the degree that we're lacking a willingness to submit to the government, obey and show good works in our city and be gentle and humble and not speak evil of anyone, I would challenge us to say, go back to the Father, go back to the Son through the Spirit and experience that relational reality that he's been humble and gentle and gracious and kind with you and that he submitted so you could have life. And if there's anyone here today who is filled with fear, about our political situation, about what's going on in the world, and you think, who in the world is going to save us from this mess? I'll tell you who, Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's going to set up a perfect kingdom. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and he wants you to be a part of it. The only way that can happen is through faith in him, having your sins removed, and you say, Jesus, when you died for me, or when you died, you died for me on that cross. I should have been there because of my sin, but you went there instead. You took my place, and you've given me your righteousness. You've brought me to the Father, and now I'm in relationship with God through the Spirit. And at the end of the day, here's the deal. You can't miss this. It's a little peek ahead towards what we're going to get to in the fall about union with Christ. Seeing Jesus as an example of submission and gentleness and humility is awesome, but it's not enough, which is why he went a step further, and he actually took himself, and he put himself into you through the Holy Spirit. So now, this most submitted, most humble, most gentle person who has ever lived, guess where he is? In you. He's in you. So anytime you're lacking something, you don't have to like muster it up. You say, Jesus, help me be gentle. Help me be humble. Help me be submitted. Help me be obedient in this exact moment. And he'll come. And he'll give you exactly what you need. So we're gonna come to the table together where we're going to remember Jesus Christ. Here we have bread and wine, which reminds us of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus shed for us. We're going to do something uh, that we haven't done for a little while, though we used to do it often. We're going to take communion in groups today, okay? So just a little bit of explanation for this. Um, communion is a time for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to come to the table and, as Jesus said, remember me. So we come to the table and we remember that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He laid down his body. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven, brought into relationship with him. So you come here, and the Bible says we declare his death every time we remember Jesus through the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to do. So if you're a believer, you're welcome to come and partake. And we're going to do it in groups. So if you are a part of a missional community, gather with your missional community somewhere around the room, go and get the elements, and then go and meet in a, in a group, and we're going to pray together, okay? If you're not a part of a missional community, you've got two other options. One, if you're comfortable just sort of grouping up with some people right around you, that's cool. Go for it, okay? If you're not and you need help and you want someone to kind of lead you, I, Tim, are you going to be? rocking it. Tim Geisland right here, blue shirt. He is going to be waiting right there. So anyone who just wants 
uh, another, uh, like a leader to take communion with, Tim's going to be waiting and he will facilitate a group of maybe first time folks or anybody that wants to take communion right over there. Okay? So let's stand together. We're going to pray. The band's going to play, play a song. Let's, let's do a song with words first, since everyone's getting their stuff, and then switch to instrumental. So we'll sing for a bit while you're getting your elements. Then there'll be some instrumental music. You can take communion during that time. And then after that, we will together sing one more song, okay? We'll together sing one more song, and then I'll come up and dismiss us. So Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for showing us how to live. Boy, I admit that it's been, uh, I mean, it's been a crazy, it's been a crazy year um, in our world, in our country. And I, uh, I struggle on a regular basis to, you know, be careful with my words and to be, to be gentle and humble towards everybody and to be on the lookout for good works. And so I need the life of Jesus to course through my veins. I need Jesus to to come and walk with me every minute of every day. And the good news is because of the gospel, that can happen. So as we come to the table, Jesus, may we confess our sins. If, If you, Holy Spirit, convicted us and reminded us of times that we did speak evil or we were were argumentative and quarrelsome with someone, may we confess those sins to you and experience your forgiveness afresh. And if there's anyone who wants to pray and talk about receiving Jesus, trusting in him, entering into relationship with him, uh, I'll be down in the front during communion and we can talk. Spirit, lead us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and come to the table, grab the elements, and then find a group to be a part of.